Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There are absolutely going to be some people who are listening, and when they hear we're going to be talking about David Johnson testifying, they're going to be saying, okay, enough. Uh, we, we get what's going on. We get Except today was fascinating. Today he was testifying at a Commons committee about his report, and boy, there was some stuff there that uh, honestly you, you kind of, uh, I, need, I did anyway, kind of shake your head and say, I, I don't really get what's going on. Uh, Duff Conacher is the guy behind Democracy Watch, joins us now. Duff, how are you today? Well, how are you? I am well, but I'm confused, honestly, and I'll tell you why I'm confused is because it seems from what I watch, I didn't see every minute of it, but I watched a bunch of it, that David Johnson is acknowledging in his testimony that much of his report was done without some information available. He said, we we wrote what we did, we concluded what we did with the information we had available but now acknowledges that there's other information that wasn't available around Aaron O'Toole and others, but yet still says, no, this is good enough, though. We still don't need to have any further hearings on this. I don't quite understand how you can say we don't know everything or our opinion changed, but the result is the same. I agree. It's just one of many puzzles in this situation. And he was really exposed by, um, a few pointed questions from uh, mostly uh, NDP and uh, Conservative MPs saying, look, here's this report that is public. It's been disclosed to the committee, says that there was a social media account run by the Communist Party of China and had 26 million followers and was publishing propaganda to interfere and influence Canadian politics. And yet you concluded there was no state government identified um, to have been behind any of this interference. And how can you say that? And he just kept on saying, well, the information we had at the time, the information we had at the time, and to close it off when there's so much information that he clearly didn't look at or consider fully, and then add to that the fact that he's a friend of Trudeau, according to both Trudeau and Johnston, they're friends, and never should have been doing the job in the first place and has an appearance of bias for that reason. It just points that we we need uh, an independent inquiry where the inquiry commissioners selected by all the party leaders, not just by the ruling party, prime minister and cabinet. And or you're going to continue having uh, committee hearings hmm. that with the committee controlled by opposition parties. And they're not going to stop holding these hearings because now, there's me, no reason to stop. Let me jump in for one second. Just say, OK, just for the sake of today's discussion, and although you're right about the the appearances of um, not bias necessarily, but that there's too many ties, all those kinds of things, and those discussions can go on. Let's leave those aside for a second. I just today to me, what really struck me again is, let's say that you were going to work on a house on a foundation and you made a plan, and then you came back later when you tore out the drywall and found out that. There was something different from what you had expected. You don't plunge ahead with the same plans. You then, because you've got new information, you change your plans to deal with what you've now discovered. I get that maybe he didn't have all this information. I completely understand that. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt to say he was not provided with all the information we now know. What I don't get is how you hold on to your conclusion that even so... We still have the same conclusion. That's the part that makes no sense to me. I, I agree. And to, to use your analogy, 
if you're buying a house and you didn't have a home inspection, then you don't conclude that it's a 100% great house in perfect condition until you look behind the walls. Right. And right. He, and there's all sorts of walls that he has not looked behind. He admitted that today. Uh, and so we need an inquiry to look behind those walls. So why, I mean, is it as simple? Let's go back to what you mentioned a moment ago then. Is it really, I, I don't I don't want to believe that David Johnson is just a political hack. I don't. I, I think he's a man who up until now has carried great uh a great position of integrity within this country. I don't want to believe that he is just playing a political game here. Is there something else going on or is that what's happening? I really don't know. No one can do a Vulcan mind meld except Spock. (laughs) True. Spock, a fictional character. And because of that conflict of interest rules say, when you have an appearance of a conflict, you step aside and you do not take part in decisions or judgments of uh, a friend of your family member of yourself uh, of anyone you have a, a connection with that would make it improper and appear to smell and he shouldn't be doing the job for that reason uh, i don't know why he's done what he's done and and tried to say we're 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 going to say this is a great house uh there's no foreign interference here i'm not going to look in the attic or behind the walls but i'm just going to say we have to stop looking into this and get on with changing the laws I don't know why he did that. I can't do a Vulcan mind meld with him. Um, but I do know that he has a relationship enough with Trudeau. As a, he said, it's a long time relationship himself. Trudeau said they're friends. You can't be judging friends. And that's what he did in his first report. And that means it's an invalid report. Just like if he was a judge and was judging Trudeau in court, people would say that's an invalid ruling and the court of appeal would overturn it for appearance of bias. So that's where we're at, and we need that fully independent inquiry. If we don't get it, the Liberals don't do it, then a committee that's controlled by opposition party members is going to continue holding hearings. And it's not the best forum because opposition party members control it, and so they're biased. So that's why we need a person that's approved by all the parties who will then be viewed as impartial because all the parties would have approved of the person and have them look into it. And I don't know, understand why the liberals are allowing this to fester. All it's doing is smelling more and more. And, you know, for those who didn't watch today and think, oh, this is just Pierre Polyev, this is just the conservatives who are hammering on this to score political points, it should probably be pointed out that the NDP and Jugmeet Singh also on the left were also hammering away at him. I mean, it's, it's, it's everybody except for the liberals. Yeah, no, the Bloc, the NDP, uh, and the Conservatives all voted uh, asking David Johnston to resign from his position because of the appearance of bias. Um, It's it's united, and as well as pretty much every newspaper editorial board across the country, including the Toronto Star, which is generally viewed as, as favoring the Liberals, saying that this smells too much. There's too much appearance of bias, and None of them have said this, but no one can do a Vulcan mind meld. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. David Johnson, you can say you act with integrity and your relationship has not tainted your conclusions, but we can't know that because no one can go inside your head. And maybe you're telling the truth, but maybe not. And that doubt means that we need to have that doubt removed by having an independent inquiry with someone chosen by all the parties. Uh, just last- like every just like every watchdog who watches over politics has to be chosen by all the parties. We have to end this process 
of allowing inquiry commissioners, the ethics watchdog, lobbying watchdog, the um, uh, information commissioner, the auditor general, the head of Elections Canada, all of them currently chosen by the ruling party, even though they make rulings on all the parties. And that bias has to stop and we need independent people in all of these watchdog positions. Otherwise, we don't have a democracy. Let me just finish with this and we only have a few seconds left, but I don't know that we were ever going to depoliticize this issue at all. It was never going to not be a political thing, but has it become more politicized by the fact that the person who is supposed to be independent appears to not really want to get too far into this or appears to have drawn conclusions that are incomplete? I mean, based on what we're hearing today, has it become more politicized than it was ever going to be? Yes. Uh, and it's not just him. The The deputy ministers who serve on the panel that is supposed to watch for this stuff all serve at the pleasure of Trudeau and were selected by him. Morris Rosenberg, who looked at that panel and how it worked and was appointed by Trudeau to do that, was uh, on with the Trudeau Foundation. The lawyer that David Johnston hired donated only to the Liberal Party from 2006 mm-hmm. to, 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 to 2022. It's a layer cake of conflicts of interest. And Canadians quite justifiably do not trust that uh, fully uh, independent, impartial f- investigations and findings are, are being done in this situation. And that's why we need a fully independent inquiry with the inquiry commissioner or commissioners approved by all the parties. It's it, the it, only solution. And I don't know why Trudeau is allowing the smell to just grow. It really does seem odd that uh, today it was, we got to run. It was acknowledged basically by David Johnson that he did not have all the information. He he said that in not so many words, 25, 30 times. Yes. And yet we are now still, he is still saying, but even though I didn't have all the information, I'm still pretty good with my conclusion. Uh, that, yeah. that's, a, that's a, we got to run Duff. I wish we could keep going. That's a weird one. It's a weird position to try and parse that. But anyway, uh, Duff Conacher with uh, Democracy Watch. Always love having you on. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So much anger and i think justifiably so i I would not on friday when this story broke um i was expressing the same feeling so much anger about this decision by our corrections system to move paul bernardo to a medium security prison for all kinds of reasons for all kinds of reasons uh first and foremost just a general loathing of the man And you heard that even from politicians, from Doug Ford and from others, but also, and this is where I think people in this country get a little nervous. We saw Carla Homolka, now her deal allowed her less of a prison term, but we saw her out in a minimum security and then just out on the streets. A number of people today saying, wait a second. If you're reducing someone's situation from maximum security to medium security, I don't know that we ever expect that Paul Bernardo is going to be on the street, but this feels like it's moving him towards day parole or something. Why would you move a person like this if there wasn't some direction that it was being pushed? Let me bring in Jeff Manishin. He is a local defense lawyer, uh, former Crown attorney. He, uh, he is as familiar with how this whole thing works as anyone. Jeff, how are you today? Just great, Scott. How are you? I am terrific, although like a lot of people, I'm uh, I'm a little ticked or more than a little ticked about this, mainly because it seems that we 
for whatever reason, don't want to take a hard line with even the worst of our worst of our worst criminals and seem to want to find a way to make things better for them, even a little bit better. And I think a lot of people are saying, no, no. Why are we trying to make things even a little bit better for someone like Paul Bernardo? Um, Let me uh, offer the disclaimer, first of all, that I won't speak to the conditions of the prison that Bernardo has been in as opposed to the prison that he's going to. Okay. But let's look at it from another standpoint. If we say maximum security is meant for the potentially the most dangerous offenders from the standpoint of flight risk, from the standpoint of risk of harm to others, including others in the institution, then you say, okay, um, we can understand what maximum security is for. And we aren't necessarily saying, and it'll be the most punitive with the harshest conditions and the uh, the least uh, resources and the least programming and all, because that's what we mean by maximum, maximum security equals most punitive. Right. No, that's not, we don't equate those two. The phrase maximum security means that we have to exercise the greatest measure of scrutiny or control over their activity because of the potential, whether it's a matter of escape risk or harm to others. Okay. Next, if we say, okay, but medium security, for example, may well be a facility that is certainly as secure in terms of escape, but you may have an inmate who, for a variety of reasons, doesn't need quite as close scrutiny because you're satisfied that individual might not represent as much of a flight risk or doesn't represent as much of a risk to other offenders, you know, matters such as that. You might say within an institution we could reclassify and say this, this individual can be classified to a medium security. And again, medium security doesn't mean less punitive, okay? It means there can be a different measure of, I'll characterize it as security. That's the word that's used. So now, we don't know the reasoning behind the decision by Corrections Canada to classify him such that he could go into a medium security institution in Quebec. There could be a host of different reasons. And let's jump in there, Jeff. Let me jump in because that's one of the things, I think, too, that is making a lot of people really upset about this, that the correction system is, first of all, they didn't tell anyone or very few people. It was almost a secret. And then they say, well, we can't talk about it because of personnel privacy issues. And I think a lot of people, and I know a lot of people are saying, how in the world does Paul Bernardo get to fall under personnel and privacy issues? We should know everything that's happening with this person. Why does he have privacy? And, and I'll answer back, let's characterize it rhetorically. If there's the concept of a, a, a privacy interest for somebody in an institution, we don't have two categories of privacy, and there is that. That the fact that you're in a prison doesn't mean that the world gets to know what programs you're taking or what range you're on. Um, so if we said we're going to have two categories, we're going to have all the inmates that are in there except for the ones whose cases got a lot of news coverage. For them, we get to know. They don't have the same privacy rights as the other people. Well, the legislative scheme doesn't work that way. It allows, I think, a narrow component of disclosure of some information about an, in, uh, an inmate when there's a, sp- a specific public interest in it. So, for example, if an inmate was being released to a particular community in halfway house, you'll see that. And I would say as well, you may have cases in which somebody might be getting day parole. Okay, could be potentially relevant. But but shy of that, Scott, we don't have a two-tier categorization of what the public gets to know. 
Okay, and I'll give you a variation on it. There are, there are certainly lots of people who are serving life sentences for murder in the penitentiary now. Do we get to know every time they have paro- uh, they're shifted in a classification over maximum to medium? Do we get to have, we're going to have a standing report all the time for all the individuals serving life sentences? Should is that we? how it's going to be done? No, but I mean, should there be a website that says here's where this person is and it's marked if they're, if they're moving? I mean, I, I, I look at this almost like, and I think a lot of people do too, and I don't know, I mean, I know this is not how our system works right now because our system is all about rehabilitation and trying to get someone back into society. Now, I don't think that that's really what they're doing with Paul Bernardo, I hope. But I do think there's a lot of people we have. Judges are permitted to declare someone a dangerous offender, which is a different category in prison and what with their with their penalty. I'd love, and I think a lot of people would, to say, you know what, you're one of those people who just gets to stay in your room for 23 hours, in your cell for 23 hours. You don't get privileges. What you did is so egregious, is so against society's mores and values and sensibilities that don't even come to us and ask for preferential treatment or a hand down to medium security. You are spending the rest of your life 23 hours a day in a cell. Go away. I think we'd love to see that. Oh, I'm sure. You know, I, you could say, why don't you do more than that? Just keep him in solitary confinement without any lights. I okay. mean, what the heck? Why should he have any lights? Okay. okay. And he shouldn't have a TV, and he shouldn't have a computer, and he shouldn't get to see other people. I mean, we can take it to extremes. But, you know, of course, uh, Scott, the issue regarding segregation and individuals in those isolation cells has come under a lot of scrutiny. We aren't into the world of, a, of an entirely wholly punitive revenge-based sentencing regime. That's number one. But number two is judges have the authority to be able to impose a sentence of how long the person will be in jail. And then it's left to Corrections Canada to determine what resources are going to be available, what facilities, what kind of programs, and what happens to the individual. That's not the stage of further, I'll characterize it as punitive um, uh, restrictions. It's meant to, they they do offer, it's obviously significantly restrictive. But the question is, how much more punishment do you want to have within it? I can't ever see the, a regime such as you suggest as being upheld constitutionally. I think people would find a cruel and unusual punishment. Do you, though? Okay, and, and, and I know that that's not what we do here. I just I know that under a circumstance like this, or like uh, uh, Robert Picton, or like, um, uh, what's his name, who was out west, who... Um, Oh, um, you know, and, uh, I, mean. I forget the guy's last yeah, name. Yeah, yeah. He's certainly a multiple murderer, right? Uh, involving a number of children. But I, and I'll think of it in just a second. Yeah. yeah, I'll think of it in a second. But should though the person, so someone at Corrections Canada gave the okay, someone had to give the okay that he was that Bernardo was going to move, regardless of all the other stuff. Should that person have been more aware? Uh, that this was, they had to know this was going to blow up. They had to know. And what this does, I think, is it draws attention and scrutiny and cynicism and criticism of the entire system. Paul Bernardo, I don't know that anyone is going to say he is worth the hassle of what they're going to have to deal with. Should that person not have just been wiser and said, look, we can move some other people, as you describe, who don't have the attention. Paul Bernardo is a lightning rod. All this is going to do is put all kinds of spotlights on our system that we don't need. I, I guess I'd answer it this way. How should the, what are, what's the individual's reasoning for the transfer, just to begin with that? What's the evidence base for it? Uh, what's the policy base, basis for it? Why? Why now? Why there? I mean, I, I, we, we don't know that reasoning. 
we should say this, though. Should we? Anybody making that call better have a host of really good defensible reasons up, down, and sideways, because you know and I know it's going to be the subject of significant scrutiny. Okay, so if we're not going to keep a track, as we described before, where every person is, we're going to know, should these decisions be public? Should a decision for why Bernardo was moved be made public? Because right now they're saying we don't do that. Well, I'm not going to suggest that any time an inmate gets moved to a different classification, it automatically is going to be publicized, okay? In, in this case, because of the public attention, I bet that we will hear more of the reasoning, okay? Alternative, we may well. I'm going to give you an alternative, though, Scott. Okay. Once we have the public safety minister of Mendocino saying, I'm just shocked at this, and although I can't tell him what to do because, of course, it's his authority, I certainly want to convey to him how shocked I am. It wouldn't surprise me at all if we see suddenly the thing gets reconsidered and he gets shifted back to Miller. Yep, yep. And we'll never know the reason. Yep. That could very well play out that way. And I'll go one further. You know, it would have been interesting, you know, I'm going to say from a legal standpoint, to know what those reasons were and try and evaluate, did they have some substance to them? If we accept for the moment that the medium security institution he's going to go back is no less punitive or restrictive than Millhaven. Let's assume that for the moment. And let's assume, for example, what if, hypothetically, they're concerned about security risk for his safety, okay, or there, there are other, there's, there's programming or other things that could be done at the other institution that can't be done for him where he is. Or they say, gee, he is not as severe a risk as he was 10 years ago or 5 years ago of escaping or harming anybody else. We can now classify a medium, okay? And, and, the, and the, the federal penitentiary in Quebec is every bit as punitive. Would people say, well, that's no good still? Remember, if, my pre- if I'm predicating it on, it's every bit as punitive and restrictive. We're just, it's medium because we're less concerned about him harming others or escaping. It's a fascinating topic. We'll, I know we'll be talking about this uh, much more. We're out of time now, but uh, Jeff Manish, and always love having you on for these discussions. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. It's a pleasure for me, too. We always seem to find challenging issues we go back and forth on, and it's a vigorous intellectual workout. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Bubba O'Neill, who just finished doing sports. I had it on on the TV here. Couldn't hear the sound, but lots of coverage today of this, uh, this, well, it's really, I mean, a huge business move in the world of golf, Bubba, but it's also, boy, is it a controversial one? You know, I thought it was well described by our anchor, Taz Boga, today that called it a, a sort of a business a business story. You know, and it is. It's a business story that involves sports. And, you know, I, I think uh, I'll be honest with you, Scott. I mean, I don't know. I've been doing regional, national, and local sports for, I don't know, 30 years, I guess, in my life. 35 or I don't know about that. 30 years at least. I don't know if I've ever woke up in the morning and felt like I'd been hit over an anvil like with it in the head with an anvil like i was this morning like i i just and i know i'm not the only one pga tour players pga tour fans analysts um live golf analysts norman greg norman the the ceo of live no one knew this was happening no this was this was held to such a uh, a selected few that got this deal done, or at least in the still deal, the deal still to be worked on. But this agreement, we'll say, that going forward, nobody saw this coming. All right, Bob, let me jump in for a sec, because I just want to explain, if there's five people who don't know what we're talking about, essentially two and a half, three years ago, Greg Norman with the Saudi government, the backing of Saudi money, started this spin-off live golf tour and paid 
literally hundreds of millions of dollars to PGA Tour players to lure them to come and play here. The PGA Tour at the time said, if you go, told its players, if you go, you're not coming back. You're not welcome back here. And so a bunch of guys went and took big paydays. And a whole bunch of other guys said, no, I'm not going because I want to stay. I believe in the PGA Tour. I don't want to be a sellout. And they now, if you read stories that are starting to trickle out after this four o'clock meeting today and things on social media, there's a bunch of those guys, Bubba, who decided I'm not going because I'm not going to take that big payday because I'm loyal to this tour and I believe in the legacy of my career and all the rest. They are, by the sounds of it, enraged by this. They've, some of these people have lost hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, let's be honest here, okay? I'm going to be as fair as I can here, and I'll, I'll, I'll localize it for our, for our listeners here. A guy like Adam Hadwin, Dundas native Mackenzie Hughes, uh, even Lissell Ontario's Ford Connors, I don't know if they'll ever be number one in the world. And I would say that the chances are they will never be number one in the world. Uh, they, they may always bounce around the top 20. In the, in the there was a financial opportunity, and I was done to ask Native because he was very vocal in against the, the golf series, uh, believing that the best golf was played on the PGA Tour. And that may, argument may continue for, you know, forever. You never know what was better or not. But a financial game was available to golfers like that. Good golfers that have won golf tournaments to make that switch. We all know about the fill of the $200 million that Bill Nicholson um, Bubba, l- Bubba, let me jump in for a sec. We're going to get Ben to call you right back because we got a terrible phone connection. Okay, we're not hearing you real well, so we're going to call you right back and reset this connection just so we can uh, we can hear what you're saying because um, it is again it, what he's talking about. What Bubba's saying is a lot of these guys. So, so Phil Mickelson, for example, I think got two hundred million dollars to jump to the Live Golf Tour, and others, Tiger Woods was offered, they reportedly, Tiger Woods was offered 800 to $900 million and turned it down because of the belief that they were gone. If you left, you left. And Tiger Woods, you know, he's made a lot of money. Tiger Woods, his legacy mattered to him. And so, well, I mean, and even he's got some skeletons in the closet. We all know that story. Let me, let me try again now. Bob, are you back now? Yeah, can you hear me? Way now? better, way better. Okay. Okay. I, I, I was just talking about the financial game that, that, golfers like a Mackenzie Hughes, you know, for his young family could have benefited from going to that live golf tour and the many that did. And as much as $250 million after winning the masters this year, John Rahm, and apparently thinking about it, and he's been very critical of the PGA tour and the PGA tour of America for his, a countryman like his own Sergio Garcia, not being able to be, at the Ryder Cup this year. This is a complete mess. And it is, in the end, it it will break down. And I don't know how history will treat this, Scott. But in the end, it's like the Live Golf League had it up right all along. And the PGA Tour totally had it wrong. They look like hypocrites. Well, they can. I mean, look, or, or the PGA Tour... Um, it, if you want to, you say, look, you can go, you can leave, you can take your money. 
And we are going to stand our ground, and those guys who are here are going to be considered the great golfers. You can have money or you can have legacy, and the guys who stay here have chosen legacy. But when, when you then back down, so now you're sharing a locker room with guys who left, who decided they were willing to give up what you're playing for because they wanted the payday, but now they get to come back with that giant wad of cash and they get to compete for what you're playing for. Someone like Rory McIlroy, who has stuck his neck out to fight for the PGA Tour, who could have also made tons of money, he, he's he got to be enraged by this at the leadership, that he basically risked his relationship with players, risked his career, and now they've basically said, oh, everybody come back, and Rory, by the way, all that money you could have made, sorry, too bad, it went to other guys. That, that it, I don't know how the leadership of the PGA Tour can possibly survive this. Yeah, I'm, I, Jay Monahan is going to get destroyed, and I would love to have been just a little speaker or a fly on the wall for that meeting between the PGA Tour players that are here in Toronto that he spoke to uh, to update them on the situation, I believe it was four o'clock this afternoon when that meeting went on. Uh, I, I'm sure there was yelling, screaming, uh, angry. Like you're ta- you, you said it right there. Like friendships were broken up over this. There was an allegiance that was broken up. There were sides being taken. Nationalistic flags were being flied. You know, in terms of sense of America over Saudi Arabia. Like this, it was a big, big deal. And to see that at the end of the day, think about this, Scott. Last year, we already saw, I mean, again, no one really expected what we heard today to happen, the merger to happen. But in one year, the PGA Tour, I don't know if they started to notice some things. Purses were increased because they could see the money that the Live Golf guys were leaving for. Um, there was This year was the start of a couple of no-cut tournaments, right, which is the, which is the exact model of the Live Golf Series. Um, but this team golf aspect, which in, in, which appears to me from what things that Monaghan said today, it looks like next year going forward there will be a team golf aspect of the PGA Tour, whatever it, whatever it's called. It's called something different than what we don't have today. But many of the things we saw Live Golf doing are going to be part of the PGA Tour. Yes. Yes, but. Again, I come back to the point of this one. We in our life, we're told all the time, you make choices and those choices have consequences and, you know, you can't turn left and right at the same time. So, you know what, you, you, these people, the guys who left chose money and gave up the chance to play on the PGA Tour. The guys who stayed made a choice, but where it's going to be, as I say, so enraging, I think, to the guys who stayed is that you made a choice that had a consequence and now the guy in charge of the PGA Tour basically is saying, oh, just kidding. But, you, but So they get all the benefit and the guys who fought for the leadership of the PGA Tour, the very guy who's now hung them out to dry, they have lost out. They're getting well, this, whacked double. Well, this is, this is exactly, this is why this entire merger and the way it's, it, it's been presented to us at least over less than 24 hours is so... It's so hypocritical. It's so insane. Because, I mean, here's a quick example. And, and people know this man very well. A, a good friend of yours, a colleague of yours for very, very many years, Gary McKay. Yep. All the same golf writer. Lucky to have him here in Hamilton. I consider him a friend. But we do not agree on the live golf versus PGA golf um, 
discussion. And we, as, as close as two weeks ago on social media, had a discussion uh, or words exchanged about the Ryder Cup players, like a Brooks Kepka, not being able to play for America. And I think it, I said it, this is hypocritical, this is ridiculous. It, golf is better to have a guy like Brooks Kepka just win the PGA Tour championship uh, and, and possibly coming so close to winning the Masters. It, it, it hurts that event. And he said exactly what you said is that those guys made a choice, and with choices, there are consequences. Who would have ever thought, two weeks after our discussion, that the consequences actually flipped? Yeah, that the, that the, per, that the people who stood on principle have kind of been left here looking like they're the idiots. And here's the other part that becomes so complicated with this now. Many of those who stayed and didn't go to the live tour and take the big money, many of them pointed to the fact that this was money that was coming from questionable origins with, from a regime. Don't even go there. Okay. Nonetheless, a regime that has human rights problems and people, some people called it blood money. And they said, I do not want to play in a tour where the blood money is driving it. This arrangement gives the head of the Saudi something or other, a main seat at the table, and some of their money is now going to be contributing to the PGA Tour. So you don't even have a choice now if you are one of those players who stood up and said, I don't want to support this. They've drawn this Saudi money into the PGA Tour. So your only choice now, if you want to really stand on principle, is not to play on the PGA Tour, which is going to infuriate some of these people even more, that they're kind of forced now, due to no fault of their own, to look like hypocrites, because once upon a time they said, I won't play for Saudi oil or Saudi blood money, and now they're going to, even though they haven't moved. It's not them who've moved. It's the tour leadership that's moved. That's, that's what's so insane about this. And, and it's not even like it's a little bit of money, right? This is what's lured the PGA Tour, because the Saudi money gives them, the PGA Tour, infinite amounts of power. And this is why they continue to say, look, do I, I will say this, is golf next year and going forward probably going to be in a better space? I absolutely do, because I think you have ideas, money influences. Um, there's just I think golf will be in a better place ten years from now than it was it is right now. That's what I truly believe. Now I've been criticized on social media, uh, email. As you well know, CHCH is a broadcast partner with Live Golf. Um, and I've watched that audience slowly grow. Okay? And maybe the worst thing to ever happen to the PGA Tour was seeing the likes of the fact that the, the major championships are not controlled by the PGA Tour. In this case, we just saw the PGA Championship controlled by the PGA of America, and which allowed, and the Masters actually, the people around allowed golfers, if they could qualify, if they had the, you know, existing uh, qualifications that they can qualify tournament that they, they were allowed to. And what did we see in the Masters and in the PGA Championship? Three of the top five golfers, golfers in those tournaments were all in golf, in golfers. So what did that do? To me, that made the PGA Tour look. And yeah. I believe that was just one more reason for their knees to buckle. It's, uh, we got, yeah. We got to run. We got. Uh, we're just having some technical problems today, but uh, Bob, we really appreciate you jumping in. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bob.
Um, it's going to be fascinating to see. Sorry about the technical stuff. Don't know what was going on today. Um, really interesting to see. The Canadian Open is on this week. It's it's The tournament itself starts Thursday. Practice round or pro-am or something tomorrow. Practice rounds were today. Uh, all this is happening with the players here. Going to be really fascinating to see if there is any visible showdown between the players who are on live, if there's any who are here. I don't know if there's any at the Canadian Open. I don't think there are. But even going forward into the next weeks, now that presumably some of these guys are going to be able to come back and rejoin the PGA Tour and play on the Tour, I don't believe that it's possible that the leadership is going to survive this because the players just seem so enraged. And it, and you can understand why. You can, I think anybody can understand why. This is a fascinating soap opera of a story. It's not even a golf story. I mean, it is, but it's not really. It's a, it's a soap opera and it's Shakespearean almost in how this is done. And then the people who had stood for something who had stood on principle end up being the ones who kind of get stabbed in the back. It's a just, it's a, it's a striking story because if all of these players had, they almost all of them, uh, Bubba mentioned Mackenzie Hughes. I haven't asked Mackenzie. I talk to him every once in a while. He's a local guy. He's always good to pick up his phone. He, I'll tell you one thing about Mackenzie Hughes, totally off topic with what we're talking about. There are athletes from any city that, start small, which Mackenzie did and go on to amazing things. And some of them forget where they started from. No names being mentioned right now, but some of them forget where they started from and others never do. Mackenzie Hughes has never forgotten. I do not reach out a lot because he's got lots of things going on, but I can tell you that every time I, I text Mackenzie Hughes because I, I wrote about him back when he was like 16 years old. Every time I reach out to Mackenzie Hughes, he gets back without fail, which I, I, I always am impressed by, not because it's me, but because I am representative in some ways of home to him when he's on the tour. Anyway, back to her. I, I haven't talked to him about this particular thing, but I bet you that he could have got a contract with Liv and probably got 15 or $20 million minimum, minimum to go there and join the tour. Probably more. Didn't do it. And now other guys are coming back who got lots of money and they get all the same, all the same benefits that he fought for to be here and standing his ground. It's, it's, it is very, it is, it's almost Shakespearean. It's a fascinating story. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.